from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 18th. Today, the voting trends that many polls missed and why we shouldn't be surprised. As the dust has settled from Election Day, there is a sense that some things didn't quite turn out how we expected. Margins were smaller than many polls predicted, and some groups of people voted in a way that was surprising or different from what many people had assumed. Today, we're looking at a few of those groups, and we're starting in Texas. I think there were a lot of state Democrats who were hoping that they could turn the state blue and had invested in some of those bigger races to make sure that that came through in some of the urban areas of Texas, Dallas, Houston, Fort Worth, uh, San Antonio, and Austin. But that didn't come to fruition in the way that they, I guess, had imagined or hoped for. Arlise Hernandez is a correspondent for The Post based in Texas. Polls and campaigns had predicted that Texas was going to be a battleground state. Many people were even talking about Texas turning blue for the first time in more than 40 years. You had a lot of new voters come and register for the first time and cast a ballot for the first time. And I think there was maybe this supposition that many of those new voters would in fact be Democrats. But in fact, what we found is that uh, many of them were also Republicans and voting for the first time and for Trump. So tell me about why that increase in voter turnout ended up being also beneficial for for President Trump. Well, I think, you know, there was a lot of uh, work that went into, particularly in urban areas of Texas, to get out that vote, right, to get young people to vote, to encourage people to vote, whether it was through social media or through sort of like, you know, peer pressure or whatnot. The Democrats could not canvas in the way that they're used to because of the pandemic. There was very there wasn't as much door knocking and sort of person to person uh, work that was taking place. However, you know, For Republicans in some parts of the state, including in the Rio Grande Valley and border communities, Republicans were active in getting folks to come out and and sort of convincing them that their values aligned with the Republican Party. And I think that is pretty surprising to what some people assumed about how people in that part of Texas were planning to vote and about what they cared about in that moment. Tell me more about what we're seeing in terms of who was voting in that part of Texas and how they were voting. I think there were a lot of assumptions going in about the way that voters in the Rio Grande Valley and beyond, we're talking about border communities all along uh, the, the river in southwestern Texas, frankly. This is a region that is pretty much 90 plus percent Hispanic and largely Mexican-American and had been reliably blue for decades, right? If not for a century in some places. Now, to be clear, Biden did win most of these counties. Uh, Democrats did win down ballot in most of these counties. What I think was probably surprising to some people who don't know this region was the margin by which Biden uh, won and and the sort of gains that 
Trump made uh, amongst Republicans. There's always been sort of a conservative contingent, right? This is also a region that is very religious, pro-life. And in that respect, this is a region also where, you know, federal law enforcement make up the biggest sector, right, of jobs, of good paying jobs in this region as well. And for for all intents and purposes, if you ask the, you know, Democrats who have represented this region for a long time in Congress, they'll tell you that largely more conservative than other parts of the country. Now, if you ask a guy like Julian Castro, he'll tell you that's actually not the case, that, you know, it's just about engaging people and that that wasn't something that the Democratic Party did, Mm. in his view, adequately. And tell me more about that idea that Democrats didn't properly engage in these communities. What exactly does that mean? So you talked to Jen Ramos, who's uh, with the state Democratic Party, and which she's from Laredo originally, which is uh, not in the Rio Grande Valley, but is a little more up uh, upper valley, but still a border community. And what she described to me was that there really isn't an infrastructure in place for the Democratic Party in these places because they've been so reliably Democratic for so long. It's always been sort of a a passing afterthought that, you know, this region would vote for Democrats as they always have, right? And so whatever systems and structures were in place for politically engaging people, and what I mean by that is, you know, uh, talking to people about the issues, trying to win their votes, having town halls, meeting people face to face through door knocking campaigns, canvassing and whatnot, like actually working to earn someone's vote. That kind of thing has not happened in a robust way among Democrats in this region for quite some time, according to Jen Ramos and other organizers that I spoke to. It's a difficult place. It's there, you know, each community is different <laughs> among the border communities. There aren't that many people out there. And one thing I neglected to mention uh, was that in the two places where it got super close, and in fact, one of these counties flipped red, are places where uh, the jobs are oil and gas. And so when President-elect Biden mentions that, you know, they're looking to transition away from oil and gas and fossil fuels, that sent up alarm bells in those communities. And so it, it gave entree to, you know, local leaders who happened to be Republicans or, or Republicans that were trying to build a base to very easily sort of convince these people that a vote for Trump was a vote for their livelihoods. And I'm curious if there were other economic factors that played a role in how people there decided to vote. Well, see, that's what's so fascinating about this part of Texas and the and the border communities, because the, the factors are myriad, right? There are a lot of different and, and individual reasons for why people, you know, did what they did at the ballot box. I think, you know, there are some theories that, you know, the fact that this is a very poor area, this is a place where there aren't many jobs, that that $1,200 check with President Trump's signature was enough to win people, hmm. uh, you know, to, to support him in his second term because they felt like he had been there for them, right? Like that was sort of like a, a sign that the president was working on their behalf. You know, there are other people who say the economy was working for them during the four years that President Trump, you know, presided over the government. Therefore, you know, why should I not give him my vote? You can also factor in possibly there have been reports about, you know, a lot of misinformation on social media and Hispanics that were targeted by specific campaigns, you know, labeling Biden, for example, socialists or sort of mischaracterizing the positions of the left that had an influence in, in all of this. I don't think there's one sort of set of factors and anyone who tells you, that, you know, doesn't know the region and, and how complicated and wonderfully nuanced it is. 
So when you say that some of these voters are thinking about the economy and thinking about the quality of the economy over the last four years when they were making their decision, and I think this is a question that you could pose to Latinos living in the Rio Grande Valley and also is a question that you could pose to any person who voted for President Trump. But but how do they square like the last eight months of the economy and the fact that the economy is doing really poorly right now? And, and if they are personally affected by that, then why is it that they continue to think that President Trump is the best bet for their financial future? No, see, that's a great question uh, and one that has puzzled me as well. And I'm going to broaden out for a second away from the border to, to look at Texas Latinos as a whole who have suffered enormously as a result of the pandemic. I think, you know, my conversations with voters gave me the impression that there is a little bit of rationalization taking place, right? That before the pandemic, the economy was great, right? Mm. And that for forces beyond the control of President Trump, and, you know, this pandemic and this, you know, in some ways, natural, maybe man-made, maybe conspiracy theory, you know, that, you know, this is not his fault, that this is something that was out of his control and he's done his best, hmm. which is puzzling, right? Because, I mean, not only in, in, in South Texas, the Rio Grande or the border counties, but across the state, you know, Hispanics in, in Texas, like I think it's 40 percent of the population and something over 50 percent of the deaths in the state have been among Hispanic families. I also think that part of the reason why so many people were surprised that there would be a solid chunk of Latino voters in Texas, especially in the Rio Grande Valley, who would vote for Trump, I, I think the, the reason for that sense of surprise is an assumption of staticness in how people think about politics in the election. I, I feel like there was a sense back in 2016 that President Trump doesn't like Mexicans, he doesn't like Mexican-Americans, he doesn't like Latinos generally, therefore all Latinos are not going to like President Trump back. And I think that it's actually a lot more complicated than that, and I do think that he has made inroads in the Latino community in ways that go beyond just like what he was saying in the months before the 2016 election. No, that's absolutely right. And I think it goes to this fundamental idea of, you know, this assumption, right, that Latinos speak with one voice, that we are all unified in this, you know, pan-ethnic identity and sort of care about the same things. And nothing could be further from the truth. Mexican-Americans in the border communities are nothing like, in some cases, you know, Mexican-Americans in Houston. There are threads there, of course. Uh, and if you ask some organizers, you know, there are certain issues, right? Like all of these people are interested in seeing their families progress, right? And, and giving them the best shot, you know, in this country. But that, you know, that people who subscribe or who don't subscribe to a Latino identity just don't see things the same way, right? When I spoke to Ross Barrera in Star County, he's a he's a leader of the Republican Party down there. You know, when President Trump came out and, you know, opened his campaign in 2015, you know, with that comment about Mexicans, Ross Barrera, who's Mexican-American, did not think he was talking about him. Hmm. He was able to disassociate his identity as a, you know, Mexican-American who's been in these border regions forever, who, you know, is more Texan than he is, in his view, Mexican-American. Like, he's talking about other people. There are different factors that come at play with your identity, even if you're all Mexican-American. When you immigrated, your family's general affluence and education level, and all of that sort of shapes how, you know, an individual family thinks about or absorbs the messages that are coming 
from the president, right? It, it begs the Democratic Party and the Republican Party to think of voters simply as the complicated human beings they are rather than categorizing them or putting them into boxes that don't necessarily, de- you know, describe the whole of their experiences. Arelise Hernandez covers the southern border for The Post. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy to AI to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. There had been a lot of discussion about how important women were going to be to this election. Sam Schmidt covers gender and family issues for The Post. We saw lots of stories about white women, women in the suburbs, and how so many of them were expected to vote against President Trump. Suburban women, will you please like me? Remember? Please. Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? Some polls showed Biden leading Trump by 23 points among likely female voters. That would be more women than Hillary Clinton won in 2016. A lot of the polls leading up to Election Day were saying that this could be the largest gender gap of any presidential election since women were granted the right to vote. What actually happened was far from that. When you look at the exit polls, the margin by which Trump won women actually grew from 2016. 55% of white women voted for Trump this year, which is slightly more than four years ago. It really seems that women voted much as they often have, and that the gender gap was really in line with previous presidential elections. The polls got it wrong about how women vote. And it brings up a lot of important questions about the sort of assumptions we make about what motivates women. We've been talking about women as as essential members of the resistance ever since Trump was elected, right? And ever since the Women's March, the day after Trump's inauguration, there's always been this narrative that women were overwhelmingly against the president because of his rhetoric, the way he spoke, um, his treatment of women, that a lot of women care about issues such as abortion and, and harassment and issues that we consider to be uh, stereotypically women's issues. But interestingly, political scientists tell me that these issues are not typically the issues that motivate women voters. And when it comes to voting, women are more likely to vote on issues such as the economy or racial identity and not necessarily their gender. And so when it comes to voting, race and education actually matter a lot more than gender. And because you mentioned racial identity as a factor that many women have in mind as they're deciding who to vote for, what are the ways in which this gender gap or the difference between how men and women are voting, how do those start to shift when you break down demographics by race? When you look specifically at Black voters, for example, the Post's exit polls conducted by Edison Research suggest that roughly 9 in 10 Black women said they voted for Biden, and that's compared to 8 in 10 Black men. 
And so we saw some slight shifts there, particularly among men, toward President Trump uh, compared to 2016. When I think back to some of the conversations that I had before the election, I think a lot of what I heard was that women were potentially leaning away from Trump because of misogyny, because of the assault allegations against him, the way that he's talked about women in public and in private, but also because of President Trump's rhetoric and the fact that he can be a bully, that he's belittling and insulting to people, and that there was this sense that women were more sensitive to those things than men are, and that for women, that kind of rhetoric from the president is more off-putting. But it seems like those things don't actually bother women any more than they bother men. And so I'm wondering what you make of that. I think the main takeaway here is that party is the main motivator for voters in America, not gender. And at the end of the day, we are so polarized politically that women are more likely to align with their party than they are with other women. And I don't think that the rhetoric influenced them as much as you'd expect. And it's very likely that it did move a lot of women. And we must also acknowledge that there was, in fact, a gender gap and women did help President-elect Biden win. And if women hadn't voted, it's very likely that Trump would have won. So it could have been important, but it wasn't important enough to see this massive repudiation of Trump that we were expecting from women. And it just goes to show that women aren't necessarily these swing voters that are going to respond to rhetoric as much as we expect them to. Like They are going to vote on the issues that matter to them and to their families uh, and to their, their jobs that they hold. And it's possible that they were swayed maybe by the pandemic, maybe by the ways in which their jobs were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and by the lack of childcare and the fact that they've had to, in really large numbers, leave the workforce. It's quite possible that all of those things influenced their worldview. But, you know, talking to experts, they highly doubt that it was misogyny and that it was Trump's rhetoric that moved women. When you look at this difference between what people were expecting from women as voters before the election and how the results shaped out, what do you see there in terms of this need to rethink how we conceive of women as voters. Yeah, it is so fascinating to me that seemingly in every election, we have kind of a name for for the women vote. You know, they've they've been called soccer moms or security moms or suburban moms. You know, going back to even the Bush era, there have been so much reporting on how will women vote. And I think this election is just another signal that women are much more complicated than that. And also suburban women are not these stereotypical white housewives that we imagine them to be. Suburbs are increasingly diverse. Women are increasingly diverse. They don't all have children children. They don't all vote based on their gender. And I think we need to start thinking about them as members of their other, you know, broader communities and, and, and demographic categories. But it's hard to do that when you also see massive movements like the Women's March that have really galvanized women and that have really gotten out the vote. And, and it's clear that they've had an impact, particularly with women running for office. But a lot of actually Republican women were really hopeful to see that there's been a record number of GOP women elected to uh, Congress uh, in this election. So there, there's a bit of a hope that we can we can start talking about the women's vote as a more nuanced uh, bipartisan vote and, and not in the kind of stereotypical ways that we've talked about it in the past. 
And I think that one of the really notable narratives that have come out of this election is also the role that particularly Black women played in being so decisive for Joe Biden and how the role of Black women voters in some of these critical swing states ended up being, in a lot of ways, like how Joe Biden won. Definitely. I think there was so much focus before the election on whether white suburban women were going to vote a certain way. But ultimately, it shows that it's not just about how Black women voted, but it's also the extent to which they voted. The turnout rates uh, really helped Biden win. And especially in the suburbs and especially in some of these swing states, it was Black women and Latina women who organized and who, who came out to vote at historic rates. And I think that has really become the uh, decisive narrative of this election. Across the country this year, Black voters played a major role in the outcome of the election. This is especially clear in Georgia, where it looks like Biden has become the first Democratic presidential candidate to win the state since 1992. Black voters played a major role in that shift. Black voters are about 30 percent of the electorate in Georgia, and the vast majority of them are Democrats. Black voters were the foundation upon which that state uh, turned blue. Vanessa Williams is a national reporter for The Post. A lot of the credit for this upset is going to organizations like Fair Fight Action and its founder, Stacey Abrams, who helped turn out Black voters in record numbers. I think the interesting thing about Georgia is that Stacey Abrams has gotten a lot of attention, but there are a lot of groups, independent Black groups in Georgia, focused on turning out Black voters at the neighborhood level and in rural areas as well. And uh, one of those groups is Black Voters Matter. My name is Latasha Brown. I am a co-founder of Black Voters Matter Fund. And uh, they started this group to focus specifically on, on Black voters in small towns and rural areas, which often get ignored, especially in places where uh, there are big metropolitan areas like Atlanta. We started this work years ago. That part of what we feel like has happened and why there was such a big drop in 2016 is because the focus was on the presidential election. For us, even when you go to policy 101, the first thing you're taught in political science in college is all politics are local. But that's not the way that we approach it. And so for us, our first point is you have to be in where people are most proximate to the pain. And so that's locally. So what they do is get in this bus and they go out to those far-flung places and make sure that people there understand who's running, understand how to how to register. Many of the communities that we're working in, we showed up when they had local races, whether it's a sheriff race, whether it's a school board race. So what we did is we deployed and strengthened people on the ground, grassroots communities that are often overlooked in elections by providing them resources and tools and strategy that we could work collectively together almost as a coordinated campaign. The idea being you have to get people roped into the process all the way up and down the chain so you don't just show up every four years uh, looking for them to help you out. That's how you build capacity and you actually build relationships. So I think one is really being able to center with the communities on how they saw power and align with them and stand with them over the years on as they were seeking local power, no matter how small the race was. And those groups have been very helpful in bolstering the Democratic Party and larger organizations like Abrams to get black voters motivated and to keep them motivated in between races. 
So besides all these local organizing efforts, why were Black voters so energized this election? I think, quite frankly, because of the last four years under President Trump. Even as a candidate, he was very unpopular with Black voters, and it didn't change during his tenure, although he try to take credit for things like the low unemployment rate. Most Black voters still credited that to President Obama. Trump boasted about this criminal justice reform measure, the First Step Act. Uh, He made a big to-do of it, bringing Black people to the White House and telling their stories. But again, Black voters noted that the Obama administration had also done some criminal justice reform work. And also, uh, Black voters didn't trust that President Trump was authentic or sincere because Mm -hmm. of his uh, rhetoric and because they remember the Central Five case in which the president actually refused to believe that these young men were innocent even after the courts found that they were Mm -hmm. and uh, took out ads urging bring back the death penalty at the same time that they were in um, uh, in court. So so people just didn't think it was sincere. And uh, his, his negatives continued to be very high with Black voters. And what were the states where we saw the overwhelming popularity of Biden with Black voters in particular, where that ended up playing a critical role in the actual outcome of the election in that state? In Midwestern cities like Detroit, Milwaukee and Wisconsin, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, the turnout among Black voters in those cities and counties uh, rebounded. It was down in 2016. Black voters were not engaged. They weren't happy with either candidate at that time, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And a lot of them set the race out. This time, people thought, no, we can't afford to do that. We see what happens in 2016 and what's happened in the last four years. And they came out. And what I found notable from this year that I think is different from many years before is that you saw Black voters and particularly Black women were actually appreciated and and shouted out for their important role in this year's election. The fact that both Vice President-elect Kamala Harris and President-elect Joe Biden, both in their victory speeches, talk specifically about the role of Black voters and how important they are. I felt like that was something new that we've seen. And I wonder if you think that that's uh, part of a change in, in how these voters are being recognized. I think it remains to be seen. Black women have always have, uh, for the last several cycles, been the group that has been most solidly Democratic in their support. And not just that they vote for Democrats, but they vote in really high numbers. And I think people are beginning to recognize that and to appreciate that and to do that shout out, which was very important uh, this time around. But I think that there is now this big question after the election of, yes, Biden can talk about how important Black voters are, how much he appreciates their contributions to getting him elected. But I wonder how much of that is going to translate into actual change or a sense of prioritizing the needs and the desires of the Black electorate in ways that we haven't really seen in the past. That's also what Black voters are uh, are looking to see happen. For instance, Black voters cited addressing racism and, and the coronavirus and health care as, as some of their top priorities. And those 
have been articulated as being priorities of the Biden administration. I think people will want to see some representation in the cabinet. And I think that that'll happen. How much? I'm not sure. But compared to the last four years, I think people expect and will see far more members of the Biden cabinet be uh, people of color, be black people, be black women even. But as far as anything more specific than that, I think it I think it remains to be seen uh, because different people want different things. And uh, even within the black community, it's not all a monolith. As you see now, there's this fight that's broken out over defunding the police and the language they use to discuss what they want. There are a lot of young people young black people out there in the streets who help deliver the vote, who say, yeah, we really need to have a conversation about this. You can't shush us about it. Other segments of the black community, including voters, some older voters are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't take away my police officers. So I think it's going to take time for people to have these conversations and, and work out what they want. And and people also have to understand they're not going to get everything they want because there's going to still be, unless, uh, you know, Georgia Democrats take both those seats, they might end up with a Senate that remains in Republican hands. And as we've seen over the last Four years when you had a Democratic House and they would send over legislation and initiatives, they just sort of sat there and and were sunk because uh, McConnell was like, no, we're not going to do that. So I think it's going to take some conversation, but also people are going to have to be patient because they might not get everything they, they want. And I do want to talk briefly about the Georgia runoff races. If you think that the incredible turnout among Black voters in Georgia that we saw in the presidential race and how game-changing that was for that state, if that is something that folks think is going to be replicable for the runoffs. They are certainly going to try. They are pulling out all the stops and they're certainly going to try. They acknowledge, and they being liberal and Democratic-leaning groups down there, they acknowledge it's going to be tough because they just came off of a a very intense election and, and people are you know, the holidays are coming up. This runoff is on January 5th. And it's going to be hard to get people's attention over the holidays, but they're going to they're going to give it a try. They feel like they do have momentum having won the state, having defeated Trump in that state, having flipped it blue. They, they think that people will still be on this sort of blue wave high, if you will. And that should help them to get people back out to vote. They also say they want to focus on Local issues in Georgia that would be healthcare, where that state is losing hospitals, particularly in rural areas where the coronavirus has taken quite a toll on communities, again, especially communities of color, especially black communities. And also the economy. People are couldn't get their COVID relief. They'd like to see something along that line. They, they're going to need relief with and help with getting jobs. So they're hoping to like make this not so much about a fight for the Senate, but a fight for you know what you need here in Georgia to survive. And they feel like if they can kind of convince people that this will be helpful to them, that that would that would be maybe a greater motivator than you know picking a fight with Mitch McConnell. Vanessa Williams is a national reporter for The Post. Sam Schmidt covers gender and family issues. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
We always want to hear your feedback about our show and the stories that you found most interesting. If you've got something to share, send us an email at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.